Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse and Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, Rapunzel, by the Brothers Grimm. Uh, Eric, why did you want to discuss this? I think it's a great story, Jesse. Uh, it's a great story for so many reasons. Uh, one of them is that, of course, it's not by the Brothers Grimm. That's right. just the version that you and I have agreed to to talk about. But understanding how a story can outgrow its individual telling, uh, that's something that's wonderful about looking at some of those famous so-called fairy tales, and this is one of them. Another reason that I like this particular story is that it helps us see examples of what are the the hidden powers of mm. Grimm's fairy tales. Um, and also, frankly, um, I like the idea that it's got these catchphrases that have entered into our lives. And mm-hmm. we shouldn't just toss them off. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your golden hair. I mean, what what's going on here? I think that mm-hmm. uh, this is one of those short stories that really is worth our reading deeply. Mm-hmm. I was. Uh, this is um, th- this particular version you recommended is not how I remember reading it, and it's much more explicit sexually um, than I think I was expecting. And there's there's um, there's a happy ending, I think, <laughs> which it, I also didn't remember. Now maybe maybe that's. I think that's rather unusual for for most of the. The folk tales in the Brothers Grimm. Am I wrong that that there's a happy ending in most of them? Is that's that's not true, is it? Actually, there. Well, it depends on what one means by happy. Um, the protagonist in most of the Grimm fairy tales, and certainly in the ones that have become most famous, uh, they they wind up being rewarded, whether they deserve it or not. Mm. In the case of the female protagonists, like uh, like Rapunzel, they sort of deserve it. In the case of many of the male protagonists, like Tom Thumb um, or the Gallant Taylor, they don't deserve it. They're braggarts or they're tricksters. Mm. But it doesn't matter because they're the protagonist. And um, by golly, we identify with the protagonist and the protagonist gets what the protagonist wants. And I think that that distinction between, say, the long suffering obedience of Cinderella and the the trickery of the gallant tailor who killed seven with one blow when it's a lie. It's just flies, not not giants. Um, the difference between those really has to do with what the Grimm brothers understood uh, in their culture at the beginning of the 19th century in the middle of Europe, um, there was a male and a female world and uh, men were allowed to succeed by shrewdness. Women were to succeed by being obedient, being obedient to their husbands. And uh, then through their husbands, they would have their social status. And that's what happens in Rapunzel. Of course, she is abandoned in a waste and desert place after the witch finds that the king's son has come to her. Um, but once the king's son finds her again 
and her tears at his blindness restore his sight, they go off to his kingdom, what will become his kingdom, and she gets to live long and happily thereafter because she is the wife of the man who is himself disobedient and sneaking into that tower to Mm -hmm. steal Rapunzel's virginity. So it's interesting to me that in asking my students about this story, they they said... um, I said, you know, please tell me the the plot before we started reading it. And they all insisted that it was the prince. And I thought it was the prince, too. But when we read the story, it doesn't say prince. It says the king's son. And that is interesting because at the end, we do get the sense that he is going to be the inheritor of his father's kingdom. But I also think that it helps us to see the illegitimacy uh, question that this might be a bastard son of the king because at some point in the story they become married and yet <laughs> there's no ceremony or if there is it's one that's completely off stage without a uh, without a third party there um, <laughs> this I, there, I think there are two things that are, that are are pertinent here one historical and one uh, narratological. The historical one is that the Grimm's, Jacob and Wilhelm, collected these stories and published them um, between about nine, between about 1810 and 1822, I think, um, in three different volumes. Uh, at that time, Germany, as we understand it, didn't exist. There were many German-speaking areas in Europe. Um, what we now call Austria, um, Prussia, Bohemia, and so on. Um, now, excuse me, I mean Bavaria, Bohemia, although many people spoke German, um, that's where the Czech language uh, resides. Um, it's only after the war, uh, the Franco-Prussian War, 1870-71, that uh, it's possible nominally under the necessity of banding together to resist the Franco, the French enemy, that Germany coalesces into a modern nation state. And a lot of what the Grimm brothers were doing in their lives as scholars, not just as collectors of folklore, was to try to demonstrate the antiquity and importance of the German folk. Um, at that time that they are working, in fact, many of the individual areas that are German-speaking are led by people who are called princes. Mm. There is no king above them. And so that word prince is sort of a little loaded. When you're in a principality, you don't just throw around that word prince. So it may be that they call him a king's son in order to... Uh, indicate the power of the social situation, but not to confuse their contemporary readers by letting them think that he is himself, at that point, the uh, the monarch of a principality. Mm-hmm. So that's the historical part. The, the narratological part that I really love is that much that happens in this story happens without explanation. Mm-hmm. And the only way one can make sense of that is to suppose that everybody sort of understood what was going on. Uh, 
for example, uh, at the beginning, uh, the, there's an old man and an old woman, we're told, and they had long wished for a child, but in vain. Now there was at the back of their, their house a little window, which overlooked a beautiful garden full of the finest vegetables and flowers, but there was a high wall around it, and no one ventured into it, for it belonged to a witch of great might, and of whom all the world was afraid. Yes. Um, in a Christian-speaking world, excuse me, in a, a Christian-dominated world, this already should let us know that we're in for a version of the story of the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Except it's a post-lapsarian story of the Garden of Eden. Instead of God having thrown everybody out because of original sin, they're already out. And instead of it being a male guard saying, God saying, don't come back in, we have a female power figure who is saying nobody can come in. So we have this walled garden with all this beautiful stuff. And the old man looks in there and, you know, excuse me, goes in there because his wife looks in and she sees that these things are wonderful. Well, that's what Eve does, right? She sees the fruit and she saw that it was good to eat, as it says in the King James translation. I, I don't know about you, my friend, but uh, I can't tell that something is good to eat just by looking at it. Um, <laughs> smelling it, I have more of a I'm more likely to be right, although um, there are flowers that use, you know, alluring o- aromas in order to poison their possible predators. But um, everybody just knows what's going on here. They just know that there is a, a fundamental violation. Now, to go back to the Garden of Eden. The fundamental violation, as soon as they eat the apple, or the fruit, literally, in in the Hebrew, um, of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very next verse says, and they knew their nakedness, and and they become uh, ashamed. It's got something to do with covering up. It's got something to do with sex. Now, the woman in Rapunzel says that she's going to die if she doesn't have that that rampion that grows in the garden. And later we're told, in fact, that Rapunzel is just the German word for rampion, which is a vegetable. Uh, She's got to have a salad made out of this rampion. Well, eventually he gets caught, the old man, who gives his wife these, this rampion, this salad, gets caught by the witch. And he explains that he had to do it because his wife would die if she didn't get this rampion. And she says, with no preamble whatsoever, if it is just as you say, right, if it is just as you say, you may have as much rampion as you like on one condition. The child that will come into the world must be given to me. I will care for it like a mother. Mm-hmm. What child? Who said anything about a child? But clearly, everyone understands these are pregnancy cravings. Mm-hmm. So the woman has looked out the back of their house through the little window, and suddenly she sees something that, which presumably she could have been seeing for years. She's an old woman, after all. Suddenly, now she has to have. And the other old woman, this one also previously barren, but now alone in her barrenness, she said, aha, I can use this to get what I have, the one power I have not had, the power to give birth. This is a story, I think, of intergenerational conflict. We've got an old barren woman 
We've got Rapunzel at the age of fertility uh, when she meets the king's son. And then we have uh, Rapunzel earlier um, as a virgin. We have the three classic stages of woman as reproductive vehicle that we see again and again in Grimm's Tales. In fact, if you if you look at the headpiece of the illustrations that that are provided with the edition that you and I are looking at, you'll see that on the left we have this scowling woman holding shears. Mm-hmm. That's that's clearly the witch who's going to cut off Rapunzel's hair when she finds out that Rapunzel has been visited by the king's son. On the right we see the dismayed look on the face of a handsome young man. That must be the king's son. They're looking at each other and the the thing in between them is a picture of a woman naked to the waist in an odalisque position clearly some sort of fertility goddess and she's got two children by her as we're told later in the story um, in that waste and desert place that place of infertility to which the the witch consigns Rapunzel Rapunzel nonetheless bears two children a boy and a girl Um, Mm -hmm. again where did they come from well nobody ever said that the king's son had sexual relations with Rapunzel But it doesn't need to be said. Everybody seems to understand this is a story about the normal cycle of life and the normal tensions around that cycle of life. So to to raise her like a mother, what, in fact, the witch needs to do is preserve her virginity. She puts her in a tower. And when she finds out that 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 girl has let a man come into her mm-hmm. right that's the word that's used that was i was so surprised to see is that i thought it was a grammar mistake yeah it was rapunzel in her loneliness trying to pass away the time with sweet songs the king's son wished to go into her and sought to find a door in the tower but there was none so i uh, into her tower is what i was assuming was the grammar but then with the subsequent birth and (laughs) what appears to be a marriage uh off screen i think it's very clear that it's not a grammar mistake indeed and at the very end uh when he finds her i mean he hears her singing um as he wanders through the world having been blinded by falling on thorns um, he's, he's in his grief leapt from the tower and lands on thorns, which blind him. Um, another Christian kind of, uh, allusion there to Jesus with his crown of thorns. Um, he, it says he was doing nothing but lament and weep for the loss of his dearest wife. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the difference between wife and friend? If she's a wife, she's no longer a maiden. Maiden means virgin girl, right? Mm-hmm. So whether although there is not benefit of clergy in fact they have become man and wife in that tower uh, i'd also point out uh, that the underlying symbolism is kind of astonishing i mean she goes into a tower that has uh, she's put into a tower that has uh, let's see if i can get the exact wording uh, neither door nor window but a little window above. Mm-hmm. And I contrast that with the window we see in the very first paragraph. 
In the first paragraph, now there was at the back of their house a little window which overlooked a beautiful garden, a little window at the back. I think of that as a normal window. It's sort of going, you know, horizontally. Mm -hmm. But this tower has a little window above. It's a big tower with no way in from the bottom. It's just at the top. It looks an awful lot like an erect penis. And in fact, this is the place where the prince is able to go and and be princely. When we hear that phrase, let down your golden hair, we know what it means in the Victorian era to say, let down your hair. It means get ready for bed. This is an era of complicated hairdos. And to let down one's hair means become casual, be familiar, get ready for bed. Mm. It's interesting to me also that as a punishment, it seems, the witch cuts her hair. This is, hair is not just a symbol of, of what time of day it is. It's also a symbol of youth with her hair so long that it it's 20 L's, which is about 30 feet, an L being approximately 18 inches. A cubit, yes. Right. So a uh, 30 foot long hair is pretty impressive for a girl who's locked up in the tower from age 12 to sometime into her early youth. Uh, as a, it, it as a symbol, I, I, I think what is the symbol for women of hair that is so, is it just fertility? Well, it is fertility, but it also means that you're not yet, uh, you're not yet, uh, married. Um, among Orthodox Jews, for example, um, a, a girl keeps her hair um, and it's visible to the world. But then when she's married, her hair is shaved and instead she wears a shaitel, um, a wig, uh, so that her actual hair is no longer visible to the world. During World War II, um, we know that collaborators, female collaborators, mm -hmm. were shown to have been the the objects conquered by the uh, the enemy by having their hair shorn so that people would see them walk through the street as having lost that. They were no longer girls. They had been raped. Whether they it, It's a punishment. Absolutely. From the witch. Absolutely. It's a punishment from, from the victors. It is. But, well, in the case of the collaborators, it's their fellow countrymen who are mm -hmm. turning on the, the collaborator. But, but it's definitely a punishment for having gone from the innocence of youth to something else. And you notice that um, the witch uses a woman's tool to cut off the hair. She doesn't use a knife. She uses shears. Mm -hmm. What she has shears for up in the tower, I have no idea. And, in fact, if we want to think of this as going back to uh, – a version of Eden, she cuts off the the hair using her left hand, so which mm. is definitely sinister. She says she'll raise her like a mother, but a mother, one presumes, would not actually abandon a child just because the child had been disobedient. Certainly in the Christian context, the, the story of the prodigal son teaches us that we're not supposed to abandon our child just because they've done something wrong. But this story is much older than that. Much older. You know, um, 
anthropologists have suggested that once upon a time, long, long ago, um, the gods that were dominant in the Mediterranean world were female gods. Mm-hmm. We find these Cycladic statues, for example, on the Greek islands, incredible, large-breasted, wide-hipped uh, fertility goddesses. And the argument is that at a certain time in the evolution of Hellenistic culture, the male gods overpowered the female gods with the development of a more city-based culture. Uh, when agriculture was no longer everything, but the city itself became something, um, the male gods supplanted the female gods so that uh, for a while we see a lot of jealousy between them as between um, uh, Hera and, uh, and uh, Jupiter. Uh, now, if you trace this back, if you think of the, the conflict between two different gods for control of fertility, the witch who has the garden but no children, and the other old woman who can look into the garden and only finally can have a child. If you think of them having a contest over the body of Rapunzel, who represents female fertility, um, this looks a lot like a vegetation myth. In fact, Rampion is a vegetable. Rapunzel's name means Rampion. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the tailpiece for this story, you'll see that what Walter Crane has given us is an image of the entire plant of Rapunzel, the entire plant of Rampion, as if it had been pulled out of the ground and the earth shaken off it. So that mm-hmm. on, the, on the top, we see the greenery that would be made into the salad. And at the bottom, we see the root. And if you take a look at that curved, thick root. It looks like two persons joining hands. Is that what it looks like to you? It does. I think each one of those roots looks an awful lot like the Italian uh, hand sign for um, go screw yourself. Ah. They look like a a backward leaning thumb that you could bite uh, derisively. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm suggesting? I, I do, yeah. That the root is a phallic symbol, this, which the woman does not need to consume anymore because she is already pregnant. The salad is what's visible, but what's invisible, but Crane makes it visible to us by shaking the dirt off it, is the root. Uh, in my researches on Rapunzel and R- Rampion, the, the plant, uh, I noted that it, it was a vegetable but that it is often no longer eaten. And I was wondering if this is tying into it coming from the Germans' uh, starvation that we see in uh, Hansel and Gretel, the crop failure that people will, when unable to eat other things, eat what's available. I've never had rampion. It says that it's nutty um, and mild. Uh, shaped like a carrot or similarly sized to a carrot, how come nobody eats it? Is it specifically craved by pregnant mothers who are unwittingly knowing that they (laughs) are pregnant? Well, I think that's because in 1810 or whenever this was first 
written down, they didn't have uh, ready access to ice cream and pickles. Mm. I, I'm joking, of course. Um, it is an exotic. I really don't know. I've never heard that that Rampion is particularly um, something that is canonical for pregnancy cravings. What I do know, though, is that root vegetables are ones that can last through the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, it's not lasts. it's not winter here because the Rampion is in full leaf, so you can make salad out of it. When when Rapunzel's cast into the desert, which is very interesting, or uh, the waste, I, I suppose it's called. I think it shows both. I think it's called a waste and desert place. Right. Okay. When she's cast into the desert, she somehow flourishes with her two children, a place where you would think there is nothing to eat. This is uh, because I guess she was so uh, durable <laughs> as her plant uh, namesake is she is able to raise up her children without uh, them dying. Indeed, she's the successor goddess. That I, I really think that notion that initially this was a vegetation myth, and it, it, it made it through the sieve of history as true oral tales do. You know, they, they follow that, that standard structure that Vladimir Prop first elucidated in the 1920s, and, and even if People tinker with them and we get scribal versions as we have here. Um, that underlying structure pulls us along. And in this case, it's one that's been Christianized. It has been moved not only into an era where the males are nominally dominant among the gods, but in fact, it's a, a male god. So we have the thorns that put out his eyes, but then we have the maternal figure like Mary holding her her crucified son in a pieta pose we have uh we have rapunzel's tears falling into the king's son's eyes and then he can see uh, by the way i can think of another king's son who uh is held and raised up by by a woman uh, as i say it's christianized the grim brothers were people of their own culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, wh- what is what does waste mean? What does desert mean? I always think of, uh, having been raised in New York, I always think of uh, a desert as a place where nobody, where nothing grows. It's just, I think of the Sahara. Mm-hmm. I think of something incredibly um, infertile and inhospitable. But in fact, um, once I, I got to travel and... Uh, saw cactuses and lizards and snakes and birds and, and all kinds of things that can live in the desert, I realized that the desert isn't a lifeless place. So I looked up the etymology, and it turns out that, that desert does not mean um, infertile at all. It means ruined and discarded, as does, mm-hmm. as does the word waste. So in effect, what the old woman does, what the witch does, which of course, in English comes from an, an old English word, uh, wecon, meaning to have knowledge. What the witch does, once the girl has lost her virginity and is no longer that prize which she can, the witch can maintain, she thinks of the girl as ruined. Oh, mm. God, my reputation is ruined, right? She thinks mm. of her as ruined, and she puts her in a waste and desert place. But clearly for uh, a fertile 
woman, it is possible to survive. And, and what she does is produces a boy and a girl. That is, you asked at the beginning, you know, how many of these stories have happy endings? Mm. This is the, the archetypal happy ending for Grimm's fairy tales. The, and they lived happily ever after. Well, it, it's, it's not just that they lived happily ever after. It's that we have a boy and a girl who are in the same family and they are not subject to sexual turmoil. The ideal situation in the grim world is for a male and a female to be able to be together and not to have sexual turmoil. In fact, if there is sexual turmoil, that's what leads to problems, as it did in the Garden of Eden. Right Now, there are only two ways you can have that situation of having the strength of a family, have males and females mutually loving, and not have sexual turmoil. They either have to be committed in a heterosexual relationship, as a loving husband and wife will be, according to this story, the king's son and Rapunzel, or they have to be born into that relationship and not yet have gotten to the point where sexual urgings might drive them out of the family, as the twin boy and girl show. That's the ideal ending for a grim fairy tale. And I think that's the ideal ending for this podcast. <laughs> but as you and I know, there's always more to say. Indeed. <laughs>